there's only one captain of the ship. You know, when you go to take loans and you have eight captains and eight directors, it really complicates the loan process. You, there's a lot of serviceability, you know, or like they'll want to delve into every person. Hello and welcome to another episode of Help Me Buy Property Podcast. This is part two of my discussion with Mike Day from Apex Development. And we are still discussing how to become a developer with no money of your own. Now, just a very quick recap from part one. We've discussed about uh, the corporate side of things from Mark's story, the real estate transition that he did. How did he came up with his business model in relation to the property development side of things and having the right team and we just only started talking about numbers. This episode, which is the part two of the first episode, is all about numbers. We are going to dive in a lot more deeper into the feasibilities, the loan structures, the finances, the private equity side, side of things. What is a serviceability business model and a lot more. So stay tuned till the very end if you want to understand how do finance structures work. Thank you for listening to us again. Stay safe. Keep smiling. Keep investing. This is Moss checking out. I'm literally going through a deal right now where the deal is sitting on the table. We have agreed on everything. All we're waiting for is a valuation, right? And the, the seller on the other side, and this is a typical example. This is not, a, of course, a luxury build. This is not a high-end build. This is just a four-unit side, which has been DA approved. And so my question was that, you know, can we establish the GRV? And so, you know, that's the question that I asked. And so the idea and the concept that we are thinking about is exactly the same. And I do agree. If I take a step back, I do agree. I think the finance and the structures are the, are the least talked about in any courses that are out there. And I say to people that should be the first thing that you should be talking about in any developments because you can't do a development without finance in place, right? Now, if I take you through this example, this particular example, and it would just, you know, open up the eyes for the viewers and the listeners about what Mike is referring to in a much more mellowed down sense is ultimately what you're doing is you're spending that money up front from your own pocket for valuation in anticipation that the GRV would stack up now, which means that it gives the financier a lot more confidence that the deal would stack up when you actually come for finance. So you're not coming in for finance right now. What you're doing is you're signing the contract right now, you know, with a settlement for say three months or in my case, it is a six month settlement where we are going for a building permit. But that basically bypasses this whole process of me trying to acquire the land first because now what I'm going to do is I'm going to basically line up the building permit in the next six months, conditional building permit, and I would go straight into con into the construction finance, right? And and that is a lot of people don't understand that, you know, you don't really need the serviceability. What you're doing is you are putting in the cash and basically going into the construction finance straight away with the lender. I'm going one better than that because like in some of the sites that we're sourcing, they're 10 million plus and 5% and deposit is a half a million dollars. So we don't want to be losing a, a, a or, or losing money on a development and, and, and being stuck in a deal unconditionally with half a million on the line. So I actually do all the preliminary lender stuff before we even sign contracts, Moxon. I know that we're going to be able to get loans. And and just for your investor listeners as well, they're probably thinking, God, I'm going to have to spend so much money doing feasibilities. No, 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 no. So you you would never spend the money on 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 a valuer or or architectural drawings until you've got a feasibility that really makes sense in your mind. So it means going through RP data, going through 
any tools you have going through REA if you don't have specific subscription softwares and really doing your research on the GRVs. Sometimes it could take you a, a good week or maybe you spend two 10-hour days just looking at every sale. And then what you have to do is click on every photo, look in every room. Is it the, the same view? Is it the same aspect? Is it, does it, is the yard south or north? Because that will make a huge difference in price. In my case, if it's waterfront, we did one where I thought my GRVs are bang on, but then the valuer came in and said, well, you don't have a jetty. You're not direct waterfront on this site. It's actually worth $3 million less than what you valued it because all your comparables have its own jetty and access direct access. And I'm like, okay, well, walk away then. It's It doesn't stack up because we had our GRs at 8.5 and they're only coming in at six, right? It's like... And that's a very, again, that's a very important point. I think don't shy from walking away from some of these sites, right? It's important that, you know, you have the heart to spend some of this money up front and don't think about, well, this is money wasted. This is an investment into something bigger, right? A lot of people don't put money aside for the project, right? Even when the acquisition phase is happening, you know, I always say for every project, of course, you know, you need to ensure that the feasibility stacks up. You know, you're almost like 70, 80% there before you start spending money on the site, right? We have done all the due diligence, but the important thing is this. And again, this is for the listeners and viewers. And this is amazing what Mike is talking about today. That have a small budget in place for even due diligence up front, right? The, 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 the valuations, the QS, you know, you are going to go out there to get this information in order to give you that comfortableness of putting the pen to the paper. But it's not always necessary. So before you go spend that money, guys, just make sure you do as much research as you can. And if you're coming up against a wall where there, there's just nothing really comparable in your mind and, and now you're trailblazing, now you need to make a decision, okay? Because if you're going to build something that doesn't exist and you can set a price, well, you're, you have to be willing to take that risk. But otherwise... Because the valuer will still struggle with the same thing. He'll be like, well, we'll pull this and okay, I'll put it here. He still has to come up with a number, but it's going to be just as hard on him as it is for you, even though you're not maybe a professional, but they'll start working on square meter rates, looking at different sales to, to put something together that they'll support. The problem with that is, is that they'll usually lowball that number because there's nothing really direct and you could end up with a bad number. And, and so... But if you're absolutely certain, like that's, and that's why I work in the high end luxury space, because there's such an underpin, like buoyancy of, of lack of supply that when you're talk, just because it, it, it hasn't been done yet. And if you build something luxurious with a, a spanning view of 180 degree ocean views and Harbor bridge views and city skyline views, and you build something there and you pay 10 plus million for a, an old 1900 style house or something, you're going to knock over and build a, a beautiful, you know, like two level apartment or something. You can see in two years that, that that will grow in value because that high end space is, 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 is there. But if you're doing things like that in that lower end to mid range, it's, it's a bit more risky in my, in my book. Um, everyone would say, well, you're playing with such high numbers, but it for me it makes sense and it actually creates safety for me and my investors because we know that the high end of the market people will pay because uh, wealthy people don't want to do what we do they don't want to put the time into DAs and all the rest some do but not all they want something move in ready that's brand new that has a lift and 
And it's, it's what every agent in all these suburbs tell me. They say, unless it has a lift to every floor, you won't sell it. You won't get the peak price because downsizers want to make sure that like they don't mind having stairs and everything. But if they can go up and down their lift for the next 20 years, they're going to be over the moon. And if it goes directly to their master bedroom or the floor that the bedrooms are on, plus their living kitchen and their garage, it's it, it really makes sense. And people will pay for what they want, you know? So whereas this mid-range market is like everyone's got the same price point and you sort of cap out at a range and then you really have to consider your build costs and overcapitalize. But heading back backwards a step, back to the finance piece, because you asked how we structure it. So I, I got I, I wanted to make sure that, you know, the upfront due diligence part, again, is so critical to leading into the lender piece. But the way we the way I typically do things and I'm having to pivot and I'll tell you about that. And this is what we were going to circle back to is there's so many different ways to do this. So it's a, what, what we do currently is a mixture of private finance and cash. OK, so. In this case, we we subscribed over, I won't give you guys the exact numbers, but you know, just general ranges and things like that. So in this case, we we subscribed about 30% of capital of, of TDC. Okay. And that that's that that's a very, very high amount of capital. Okay. And in this case, so I did it based on TDC. Now the lender we ended up using said he would lend up to 65% of GRB, but again, subject to valuation, right? So you have to be very conservative in your GRBs if you want to take that additional leverage, because I was sort of using about more like a 55% GRV number or a 30% TDC sort of LR, like LVR kind of thing. So it's a mixture of cash. And what that cash does is it provides security to the lender. So you're putting in millions of dollars of security paying. So what we do is we structure the loans so that we only have to calculate interest on a couple of components, the land settlement and the build. Everything else we fund with cash. Okay. So all of your consultant costs, your land tax, your legal bills, your council rates, Everything is funded by cash and we're just taking a loan to complete the land settlement and, and 100% fund the bill. Typically, we will, we will allow cash for the, for the builder deposit, signing the contract, because typically you have to do that in order to get the loan to show the lender and then the lender will need what they call a builder side deed to ensure that they're going to complete to the quote that they've done in the contract you've signed. Okay, so... It's very important that you have all the build costs sorted up front. So that's that's kind of how we did this deal. So it, it requires a lot of upfront cash. Now, there's different models where you can bring in serviceability. And because build costs have elevated 30 40% in the last few years since we acquired my current project, I'm having to completely pivot the business model now. And where I'm looking is is our biggest cost is because I can't bring the build costs down. It's going to take a few years and I can't just sit on my thumbs and have no revenue for a few years because build costs are too high waiting for them to come down. So we go to the other largest cost in our project, which is finance, because in these large lu luxury you know, projects, you could be looking at 1.5 million in interest just on the land, you know, depending on how long you need to hold it for. And your negotiation strategy on the land price becomes a, a, a push and pull, give take with the vendor on how much settlement time can you give me 
to offset costs in, in interest so that I can give you the highest possible price to appease them, right? Because there's a direct relationship and vendors don't typically understand that and they just want short settlement and the highest price. And it, so those can be difficult and challenging. But what I'm finding is, is now we're going to pivot and I'm, I'm now beginning a new research phase of the business to bringing on potentially and changing funding models. I, I still want to use the private space. My current lender has been incredible. I'm not going to say who they are here, but you know, if anyone wants to contact me and ask further questions, I, 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 I'm happy to recommend them. My experience has been exemplary, but it's a higher cost model. And he knows that. And, he's actually, and, and they're actually sourcing a different type of funding to reduce costs for people because they can see the, the same thing I'm seeing, which is build costs are escalating. And I really want to build a future partnership with these guys, but you know it, it'll be a case by case deal. So the pivot that we're looking to make is potentially bringing on a serviceability partner who has that higher net income, who could service five to eight million dollar loans. And that, what that does, folks, is is that lowers your cost base in the finance. So in private finance with a lot of cash, you can capitalize all your fees. There's not a lot of upfront costs to you as, as the borrower, because all those fees get capitalized into the loan and paid out at settlement. But there is a chunk of money that you need to, like outside of all the cash you spend on the development, there's a chunk of money that you need to deposit into their trust account to put up front as security. And then I think what they do, I, I mean, I'm just, I'm just guessing here, because they say it's capitalized to the end and, and, and then the line fees are billed monthly. But at the end of the day, like in our case, we put up about a million dollars and surely he's paying out his investors some upfront costs on their returns, you know, to keep them happy to go into an 18 month deal with some of that money, or he's deploying it elsewhere and, and, and going from there. I, that's his business. But at the end of the day, the, the, the private space allows you to capitalize. So you don't need to pay upfront fees. They capitalize all that into the loan. Just like lenders' mortgage insurance when you're buying your PPR, some lenders will capitalize that so you don't have to shell out like 20 grand on top of stamp duty or something for a, you know, a, a, a million dollar purchase. So just one more thing to add for the users and listeners. I think, of course, you know, from a private equity perspective, it would make a lot more sense for them to capitalize, right? Because there is no serviceability in there. So ultimately, they're giving you the money. And if they give you more, which they want it coming back to them, they might as well not give it to you in the first place, right? And so naturally their thinking is that, well, this is the interest that is going to come back to us anyway. Why give it to them in the first place? We'll just hold it and call it capitalization, right? And so banks do it quite safely and securely because there is a lot more collateral. There is a lot more serviceability. They'll check your income. They'll check 10,000 different things um, to capitalize that income. But from a serviceability partner perspective, of course, that's the risk that they're managing by keeping that money. Yes, you're right in saying that, you know, they, they might be earning returns elsewhere or, you know, providing returns to their own investors as well, because ultimately these are managed funds. So, you know, really good point. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, <clears throat> what you're doing is, is you're, you're, you're avoiding serviceability, you're avoiding income testing. So the way we structure things is like I would take directorship and 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 look at things so that there's only one captain of the ship. You know, when you go to take loans and you have eight captains and eight directors, it really complicates the loan process. You there's a lot of serviceability, yeah, you know, or like they'll want to delve into every person. So 
we we created a structure of a company that bought the land and then a company that houses the investors. So we didn't have, even though there was a unit trust here, we didn't have the investors investing directly into that unit trust. We had another layer of protection for them down in a separate company where we issued the shares and everything else. And then and then there was only a single shareholder in the company that owned the land, which was the shareholding company. So and they just own the units. And then it all fragmented from there. So again, we really think about strategy and our legal team comes up with the best protection methods so that all of your personal assets as an investor are protected and you're really only putting this money into that deal. And that's very, very important. But getting back to the whole structure of the finance, yes, it's cash and debt. And But what we're going to pivot to is more of a serviceability model. And so, for example, right, in private space, in the current day, you would be seeing, say you want to take a loan of, let's just use round numbers for easy math, right? $10 million loan. You're going to pay around 6 to 7% just in establishment fees and ongoing line fees on a per annum basis. And those are per annum, not just a one-off fee. So if your project is 15 months, you pay 15 months of line fee, not just the upfront cost of you know, 10 million times 6%, it's you need to now do the formula of how much do I have to pay for those extra three months on the line fee? The establishment fee is one off. And that 7% is huge. You know, it's a huge cost. I mean, think about it. That's $700,000. So if you pivot over to a a, a standard type lender, now the, the it's a bit more difficult going down the serviceability track, there's a lot more documentation and paperwork, but your costs come down to almost nothing. So you might have a 0.5% establishment fee and no line fee, maybe as high as 1% depending on the bank or the lender. Again, my fiance is a mortgage broker. So like I, I listen to her all day talk about this stuff with her clients. So it's just going in by osmosis into my head about like how much people are paying. And you can leverage up to 80% of, say, as-is land value, and then later on for the construction facility, 80% of, of construction. So you need less cash, you, you have lower costs, but the problem is, is you need someone who can service these high debt amounts, and you need someone with a seven $800 million salary who can sign up. Now, then people always ask me, well, what's, like, if someone's putting in... 500,000 or a million, because typically that's what we make our minimum because we have to deem everyone sophisticated by the ASIC regulations. Okay. And we follow all those regulations and we, and we create everything that's required. My lenders and, and my, I have other people who have all the AFSL requirements to back everything up that we do. So don't worry about any of that side of things. It's very complicated to explain it all, but just know that it's all taken care of in the back end so that we're all, you know, 100% above board here. But it's important that everyone is, is sophisticated. And why? Because if anything goes wrong, then a person can claim that they didn't understand the deal that they were entering into. But with that sophisticated status for a group of investors, it basically indemnifies everyone that someone who didn't understand fully can't actually damage the partnership. So, but for example, say a serviceability partner on a deal puts in only $250,000, right? And that's the total repayments over the course of the loan. And five other investors put in half a million in cash each. Well, or more, the value of the 
in my mind, the value of the serviceability partner that saved us $650,000 in costs to make the development possible is just as valuable as the person who put in double the amount of money. So they're given the same equity share and their returns are actually higher cash on cash because, but they're the ones who made the deal possible, right? It's also about the risk, right? I think, you know, I remember when I did my earlier developments, you know, um, you know, looking at me myself as well, you know, I, me and my brother, I was the serviceability partner and we didn't, I didn't even know that the term at that time, I think this is going back 2010, 11, and so when I kicked it off, you know, me and my brother, we went into the partnership. I brought the cash. I brought the serviceability. And I think he put in like, I think 50 or $60,000 at that time. And we did a 50-50 split. And I was like, yeah, cool. You know, there's money there. But as you get educated, you realize that the serviceability partner, you know, ultimately, if they're bringing five, $6 million worth of debt, you know, that is their money plus whatever holding cost that, that is attached to it, right? And so when you're looking at people bringing in money, the debt that they are bringing is basically possible because of them bringing in their profile. They are taking a lot more risk, right? So, you know, that's how the structure needs to work. And so, yes, you know, cash is important, but cash is not as important as the serviceability partner that is servicing the debt because they would definitely almost, if not more, almost all in most scenarios, take the same amount of share as a normal cash, you know, person taking the equity share. So doing the quick map, right? Like on that example of 500 versus 250, in this case, probably what will end up happening is the investor who brought 500 and say they make a 50% return, they'll make they'll make 250k, but the investor who brings the serviceability will also make 250k and that's a, that's a 100% cash on cash return. Right? So and and I'll just put this out there a little plug like we are looking for serviceability partners. So if it's something if if development is what you would like to get into to accelerate your wealth growth and double your money every two years or 18 months or whatever the, the, the duration is. Some of our projects go as long as 30 months, okay? Just depends on the complexity of them. So it, it would be a, a longer duration, but the long term for the serviceability partner would only be up until when we settle on the land, which is typically 12 to 15 months. Well, we'll because we doing option agreements, Moxon, are very difficult based on the new legislation that came in in May of last year around double stamp duty on on option fees and all the rest. So it's a lot easier to just do standard straight up contracts with long settlements. Cautionary note to all your listeners, though, make sure your owner fully understands they have to sign the applications and that you're submitting the applications in their name during that settlement period, but they are obligated to sell you the property. So you don't have any risk in not being able to get the property after. But if they won't sign those applications, you can't submit your DA, you can't submit anything during that until you own the land. And you don't want to own the land because until a certain time, because then it costs you more to hold. So it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's a slippery slope. What you need to do and the way we protect ourselves always is that, you know, when you're, when you're, you know, we always sign Section 32 or contract of sale in real estate, say, for example, in Victoria, you know, you always call out a condition of sale that or, or special conditions where you talk about, okay, you know, the vendor gives you the right to access to the property, the vendor would, you know, sign all of these without any, you know, within 24 hours, etc. all of those things and to ensure that there is enough protection in there. For your listeners, feel free, you know, at the end, I'll give you all my tags, how to contact me. 
feel free to get in touch and I'm happy to divulge some of those those key criteria on the offer letter that you need to put in and the conditions because they're really critical when you're dealing with long settlements. Another one is caveats, right? Making sure that you have a registered caveat, making sure that you have a charge against the property because in the event that the vendor defaults during that settlement period, you need to be able to make sure you get your deposit back. So like, and there's a, and there's, there's a magnitude of them. I put in about 10 different conditions just around those long settlement sort of things. And they're all standard legal clauses that no lawyer will ever balk at because it's, it's standard practice for this type of transaction. So, but I guess going back to it, if there is a serviceability partner in any of these listeners, you know, feel free to get in touch. We, we do have a pipeline of projects that we're looking at that would really fit a, a serviceability model um, that don't stack up right now with traditional private debt funding and and cash equity you know due to the build cost nature uh and and sales prices just haven't caught up to build prices yet right we probably need another year or so for sales to jump up and for build costs to fit like just settle and start reducing a few percent so they're never going to go down folks they're not going down build costs will never return to pre-covid levels like it's just not going to happen all all the suppliers will will not be reducing their margins. They they're they're you know even if their costs have come down, they're just going to say, well, that's the cost now. So let's not hope hope for unicorns and rainbows and and hope build costs come down. We 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 as business owners, investors, developers need to pivot and find solutions to to make numbers work. Definitely, definitely, and that's a good segue, Mike, in relation to where do people find you? You know, how do they come out and network with you? You know, uh, if you can share your email address, share your website, you know, how can people get in touch with you? So probably the best place to go just to start with is just my website on the very bottom of, of our website. Um, my, my email and my contact number are there. You can also look us up on Facebook and go to the, the about information and my phone number and uh, email address will also be there. You can check us out on our on our website. It's Apex with two X's, uh, developments.com.au. And why the extra X in Apex? Well, uh, as I said, we're focused on that really high-end space, the, the pinnacle and the peak, and and what you need to be successful in that, that side of the luxury space is a, that additional X factor that everyone else is missing in the market. And we try to fill a, a small gap where we're underpinned. But you can also check out, so I'm on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. My hat, my, my tag, I think is at Apex Developments with an S and two X's in developments. You can check out our current project marketing website. It's called Azure Baronier, A-Z-U-R-E, uh, Check out, we're, we're going to be updating that in the coming days. The address of my current development is 14 Bulls Road, Barnier. So if you want to look at the listing, maybe late next week, we should hopefully have a brand new drone video of the finished product, a bit of a video walkthrough uh, of, of the whole penthouse that we've developed and some new images on the listing as well of the exteriors and things the, of, of, and and if you want on our YouTube channel, you can check out the demolition video there that shows you what was there at, to start, how it looked when it finished development. There's an excavation video. There's a video of us constructing the slab. And now I'm going to finish off in the next couple of weeks. I'll be posting a really nice video of the transition through the build phase and the fit out. 
it'll be a li little bit lower tech than the, than the drone stuff that I've done those other videos based on because you're just walking through with your phone walking around but it's going to be it, the transition was incredible seeing it come to life and even as as early as a month ago boxing seeing the mess out the front and then all of a sudden it's just beautiful you know so um i'll, I'll be developing and and producing those sort of videos in the coming weeks as we as we get stuck into a refresh of our sales campaign because we sold the first ground floor unit three weeks into our our into construction so off the plan yeah so that was a really great success but the market that we live in she uh the the, the owner came from uh wasn't a local so she and she cut she came i think from a, a construction background or something so she she really understood the build process and had a lot of confidence around buying off the plan Whereas the locals in the area typically don't like to buy off plan unless it's like an apartment or something. And we, well, we've got an apartment. This is more of a, a home, you know? So I've got, we've got a, a lineup of buyers right now that are going to hopefully come through late next week. Uh, we, we, we're doing practical completion, I think later today or Monday. We'll get stuck into the defects over the next couple of weeks. And uh, my builder should be hopefully. Uh, done and dusted in the next week or two, and the place is already staged. So, and and that's a really critical component that we could maybe talk about in future. Moxon is just the importance of of, of staging the, the the premises for sale. So, um, yeah, for viewers and listeners, we would be sharing all of these pictures and videos together with you know all you know when this podcast goes out there. Um, I'm going to do very quickly do a wrap up uh, in relation to property development. Of course, you know, property development is not easy. It is hard. When you think about property development, you know, um, a lot of the times, you know, they say that 90% of all millionaires comes through, you know, owning or developing a real estate, but understand that, you know, 90% of people who go broke also come out of real estate and making bad decisions. And so it's very, very important that, you know, you have an experienced team beside you and behind you who can deliver this safely and securely thank you for listening to us today keep investing keep smiling stay safe this is moss and mike checking out adios thanks guys thanks for having me mox